Dorothy Sayers, who maybe some of you um, know as the great English mystery writer, uh, she wrote the um, she wrote mysteries. I've read them, and I can't think. I know five herrings. Uh, Lord Peter Whimsey uh, mystery series. But anyway, she she was also an apologist for the faith and wrote a book called The Mind of the Maker. And one of her contentions was that people didn't realize that God was beyond being an engineer or a great physicist or a great scientist, even though every part of creation is finely tuned and engineered and the law of physics are learned from God's creation. She said more than anything, God is a great artist and he has filled this world with his artistry. In Ephesians 2.10, a scripture, no doubt that you know, and we talked about it, I think, week after week. For you are God's workmanship. That word workmanship means poema or his masterpiece. Our God has a picture, a design, and beauty in his mind that he is putting onto the canvas of our life. And what God does beauty, he does beauty beauty in a flawless way. He thinks up this concept and then he begins to speak it into existence. I think of stars and how dramatically God put these stars on a black, inky, velvet sky in perfect symmetry, in in perfect distance. And so they shine and the beauty of of some twinkling from a distance and some closer. Years ago, um, Brian and I were in Green Valley and there were a couple beach chairs in my dad's uh, cabin and we got them out and it was freezing cold. So we have all our coats on, we've got blankets and we're we're on these beach chairs, which is so funny because it's like 30 something degrees and we've got them totally reclined and we're just staring up at the sky because it was so absolutely gorgeous. It was so filled with stars and beauty. And, you know, it was so dark around us. You know, I couldn't see Brian and he couldn't see me. So we kept talking to each other, but we could see the sky and the lights. And it was so, so beautiful. But then I think of trees, their various leaves and their various sizes, the different colors, the styles of even the bark that are so individualistic for the type of tree, the many shapes and the twists of the branches. And and not only are these trees beautiful, but they're functional. They've got this incredible purpose. They take carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into oxygen. They provide food, they provide shade, and yet they're a thing of absolute beauty. And then there's water. Who doesn't love the sound of a waterfall? or the gurgling of a stream, or the sound of the pounding waves on the beach. It is so purposeful, though, that water is this universal solvent. When you go to get a stain out of you know, a, a garment, what do you do? You're using water, right? Or maybe you've been at the restaurant and you're getting the ice cube on it immediately. You want that water because water is a universal solvent. I think of the oceans, how they come up on the shore and they wash all the debris left by those people who don't live here, right? They leave it on the beaches, not us. And they take it out to sea where, you know, those bottom feeders take care of it for us. 
But water is so necessary for life. We can't, we can't live without water. Three days without water. We can't live without water. Nature can't survive without water. And then water also has this refreshing quality. When you're thirsty, nothing works but water. Nothing. There is just that refreshing of water. Job said in chapters 26, 14 of the book named after him, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways and how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? God sees the design in the picture and God, as we spoke about last week, he can create out of nothing, bara, but God also uses discarded items. He works with people's casts off. In Isaiah 61, three, we're told that he gives ashes. Uh, For ashes, he gives beauty in exchange. You know, I don't know if you have those friends who can see potential in a garage sale. I I go by a garage sale and I see a garage sale. I see things that people don't want and I don't want them either. (laughs) But God has a way of finding those treasures in the midst of a garage sale and going and polishing them up and finding the exact right place for them. We're told in Psalm 84, 6, that he takes tears and he turns them into pools of refreshment. We see in the lives of Joseph and Moses and Jephthah, these men who were all rejected by their families and by Israel, we see that God raises up leaders and saviors. And of course, we think of Jesus, the rejected chief cornerstone, and how God took Jesus out of the foundation of our lives and the foundation of the church and the foundation of the world is all built upon the stone that was rejected that has now become the chief cornerstone. God uses little things to make big things. Have you noticed that? He uses a little stone to take down a fully armored giant. He uses a small jar of oil in a widow's house to pay off debts and to sustain a family. He uses an old prophet in 2 Kings chapter 6 to capture a whole Syrian army. He uses two loaves and five fish to feed a multitude of over 5,000. We see that God also uses even bad things. In Psalm 76, 10, we're told that even the wrath of man will praise God. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph discovered that God even uses evil for his greatest purposes. In Nahum 1, 3, Nahum proclaims that God has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And then, of course, in the cross, we see that what man means for, ultimately, for ultimate cruelty and shame, absolute humiliation, becomes the greatest emblem of love, ugliness turned to beauty, death turned to life, condemnation becomes forgiveness, sorrow becomes joy, and hell gives way to heaven, all through the cross. Corey Tinboom related the Christian life to a tapestry that God is weaving. I read up on tapestries this week, and I found that tapestries are all unique in design and and their surface. They're not like any other textile or art form. And that unlike other forms of art, that they are actually 
creating the surface and the design at the same time. You see, usually an artist goes to a surface and he creates something. But with tapestry, it's a little different because the actual surface is also being created at the same time as the work of art. It consists of a warp, which are threads that are taut from top to bottom, and then what's called the weft, which goes from you know, one side to the other. It goes um, horizontally instead of vertically. So the warp goes vertically and the weft goes horizontally. And the weft is weaved in between the warp. And sometimes the artist will skip two threads. He might go two, one, two. He might go one, two, three. He has this way of weaving according to the design that he is making. The weft employs all sorts of different materials and fabrics. It will use cotton, linen, gold, silver, rags, wool, silk, and I read even in some bubble wrap. To each his own. But the objects for the weft are chosen according to the designer's intentions. He sees the picture that he's going to make. And so he chooses by color, by texture, because of the all over design and because of his own purposes. Tapestries have been around since the third century BC, and they have a variety of purposes. One of these purposes is to tell a story. In fact, one of the oldest tapestries in the world is the book of Revelation in tapestry form, often there to commemorate an event that happened in history. Other times they're just to show off beauty and color or to bring beauty and color to a room. In um, olden days, they used to be used to cover up the walls. The walls would be cold and the walls would be um, ugly. And so they would put these tapestries to cover up these walls and to bring warmth into the house, to keep the breezes out, to bring insulation to the house. Kings and nobles would have their tapestries go wherever they were staying. And so the tapestries would be rolled up and moved from house to house wherever a king was. Tapestries were a lifetime achievement. The average weaver works 30 to 40 hours a week and only produces one square meter a month. And, you know, a meter is about a yard. So working 30 to 40 hours a week, it takes them four weeks just to get about a a yard of this design done. What does that speak to you about your life? No wonder it's taking so long. (laughs) A weaver must know not only the design he's creating beforehand, but he must know how to make that design appear as he weaves. He must know exactly the tension of each thread that he's pulling through the weft, uh, each warp, whatever. He must know it. I don't know it because I don't weave. I knit, but I don't weave. But he also must use just the right color at just the right place in the tapestry. If tapestry is too perfect, if you look at a tapestry and it's too perfect, if the stitches are all uniform, even, and there are no dangling threads on the underside, if it's too smooth on the back or the front, it's an imitation, and it's made by machine, and its value is far less 
than those that are hand woven. Corey Tinboom saw her life as a tapestry. She was born in Holland, raised in a Christian family. She believed in the Lord. She never married, and she made watches with her father. That was her trade. When she was in her 50s, World War II broke out, and her family was led by the Lord to hide Jews. She was arrested, found guilty by a tribunal of Nazis. She was sent to Ravensbrück Prison, where she was maltreated, where she had to suffer countless indignities, where she lived in deplorable conditions, where she was forced to labor, where there were drills at four o'clock and five o'clock in the morning out in the cold, where she was treated with cruelty, where her sister died, but 12 days later, she was released. Corey truly believed, Romans 8, 28, that all things are used by God in our lives to work together or weave together a perfect design. Corey saw that whatever threats, whatever hardship, whatever blessing, whatever deprivation, whatever sorrow, whatever joy was used by God. And she put this in a poem called, Life is But a Weaving. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The darkest threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choices up to him. But not only was Corey's life a tapestry, but all of our lives are tapestries being woven by God. He is taking the various threads of our life, all the colors from deep, sorrowful hues to bright and bold tones. He's using all different fabrics, strands of silver, threads of cotton, common stuff, linen, silk, flax, heavy wool, to weave a work of art, a poema, a masterpiece. Nothing in your life is meaningless. Nothing. Nothing in your life is useless. Nothing. Nothing that touches you goes unnoticed by God. God takes each thing and employs it in his loom. This glorious work of God is seen in his word. The testimony of every great Bible hero is born in adversity, tested in deprivation, formed in the wilderness, challenged by opposition. It's about overcoming obstructions and standing when slandered. It's in these atmospheres that God weaves his greatest masterpiece. And this is the story of Ruth and Boaz. It's a tapestry of beauty. It's a tapestry of romance, which we all love. It's a tapestry of redemption. It's the story of grace. It's the story of restoration. And it's a story that is told in the loom of this book of Ruth. We see the great artistry of God who clothes the fields with an array of flowers and of varied hues 
as Jesus testified in Luke chapter 12. God uses a host of different colors of threads and different fabrics to weave together the story of Ruth and Boaz. This book shows that all things work together to create a testimony, to create beauty, to create function. So many lessons to learn through the book of Ruth. You could go on and on and on. And to show God's purpose will not be thwarted because Ruth and Boaz are in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So what threads do we see? Well, I think that the book of Ruth begins with the threads of drama, drama threads, right? These are, these are deep kind of angry colors. And what we see is Elimelech leaves Bethlehem because of a famine. He moves to Moab. And some condemn Elimelech over this move. They say he had a lack of faith. And that because of this lack of faith, he was visited with death. Except for the fact that his sons are named Malon and Chilion. Malon means sickly and Chilion means wasting away. I think these boys were born problemed. I think from birth, they said, you know what? I don't know if these guys are going to last. Who names? Who looks at their baby and goes, oh, wasting away. You know, or sickly. But these are the names that these, you know, Naomi, I think, had a problem with depression. We'll get to that later. (laughs) But these are the names that she names her son. So the Bible does not condemn Elimelech for moving to Bethlehem. It's just a statement of fact. I mean, moving from Bethlehem. It's not condemned. It's just simply a statement of fact. This is what he did. There was a famine. Perhaps he was worried about Malon and Chilion getting enough to eat, knowing that they were sickly. So he makes this move on the other side of the Dead Sea, a whole different country. In fact, he had to travel through Ammon to get down to Moab, but he makes this move. It's a thread of drama. It's a dramatic move. It's a move away from everything that is familiar for Naomi and Naomi's sons. It's a move away from family. It's a move into or through enemy territory because the Ammonites throughout the history of Israel were at odds against the nation. But we also see that there are distant threats. These are all going to be Ds. I'm just going to prepare you. You can just do D, 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 D. Distant threats or foreign fabric. These are imports. You see Moabite threads here because Malon marries Ruth the Moabitess. And these are different colors than are found in Israel. When I was in college, I took a Venetian art class and it was fascinating. I think it had to do with the teacher. She loved Venice. And she would talk about the Venetian colors. And the Venetians like Raphael and Botticelli, they, they brought these deeper colors. In fact, the colors of uh, the Venetian artists are so rich that you almost feel like you're being sunk into them, that you're being drawn into these deep, deep uh, colors and the richness. They brought some of the, the crimsons and the, the burgundies and, and the purples, and they brought just this, this deep hues to um, their art that were copied later on by um, 
Michelangelo and others, the depth of the colors. And so we see this, this richness of colors in these distant threats as Ruth the Moabitess marries into the family of Elimelech. We also see the threads of death, these um, dark, dark, somber hues as Elimelech dies and Malon and Chilion also succumb to death in Moab. We see threads of discouragement as Naomi is left with two daughter-in-laws and she can't support them. She's a widow in a foreign land and she must return to Bethlehem. But we also see threads of desire because she hears that there's bread in Bethlehem and news of God visiting his people with bread. You know, oftentimes we cannot see how the threads of desire can be part of God's loom, his tapestry. You know, often we accept like, oh yes, God can use these dark things. You know, some of us, we are kind of like Naomi's. We accept the darkness and the hard places in our life sometimes better than the glorious, happy places. I don't know about you, but I've been having one of those weeks, you know, where I had like two really good days. I'm like, okay, this day is good. It's really good. I'm going to bed and it's still good. Okay, but tomorrow is coming, you know? And then I finish tomorrow and it's like, okay, that, that was a good day too. All right, now I'm getting scared because I've had two good days, you know? Sure not the third day. Boom. You know, you're just like, I knew, I knew you were there. I knew you were hiding somewhere. You know, I knew you were going to come out, but we can sometimes have a greater expectation for the warfare than for the blessing. We can get to that place and, and we're not allowing sometimes God to also weave in and say your desires. I'm going to use these desires these good desires. Naomi has this desire to return to Bethlehem. And why? Because she hears that God has visited his people and it's evidenced by the fact that there is now bread or plenty, a good harvest in Bethlehem. And this is the draw, but God's going to use this. Again, in Philippians chapter two, verse 13, it says, God works in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. God will put his will in our hearts. That's what he does. He puts his desires in us. That's one of the great things about prayer. Because prayer is not about getting our will done as much as it is aligning us with the good will of God. It makes our desires his desires. His desires our desires. This is one of the things that prayer does. So the threads of desire. Next, we see the threads of dedication. Orpah does not remain with you. How did she get all those Ds? It was divine. The threads of dedication. Orpah does not remain with Naomi. This thread will not be part of the tapestry. Isn't it interesting? God says, no, not that thread. God chooses the threads. There's some threads that we're like, Lord, that would look so good. I don't care where you put it in. Just put it in. And he's like, nope, not that thread. But Ruth clings to Naomi and says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. That is dedication. 
And this is a thread that God weaves into this tapestry. Ruth travels back to Bethlehem with Naomi, two single women alone, trekking through the wilderness, vulnerable to bandits and the elements. I mean, in this place, this is where lions, this is where cobras, this is where bears hang out. In fact, later, remember David in the fields of Bethlehem, he kills a bear, he kills a lion. Here's two single women making their way around the Dead Sea through Ammon back to Bethlehem. But Ruth is dedicated. She will not let Naomi return alone. Ruth's dedication to Naomi is what is talked about in Bethlehem. This news about Ruth is heard even by Boaz. He said, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and mother and your land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before, Ruth 2.11. Years ago, my son-in-law heard about Kristen, my daughter from a roommate. So Michael had never met. He came to England from Florida right after Kristen had uh, moved back to the States. But he heard, um, because this young man had just this terrible crush on Kristen, and he was talking about my daughter all the time. Well, Michael became intrigued, like, what's the pastor's daughter look like? And my son-in-law told me that every time he'd hear Kristen's name, this little flutter would come to his heart, and he'd think, that's crazy. I've never even met her. But it would just kind of like, oh, there's something in that. He even said to a friend, pray for me. There's something that I feel every time the pastor's daughter is named. Then this this young man, he's talking to Kristen on the phone, calling long distance from England. He wants to impress Kristen. So he's like, hey, want to talk to a model? Because that's what Michael was doing in London at the time he was modeling. And Kristen's like, yeah, put him on the line. And so Michael gets on and he's like, hi. And Kristen's like, hi. And they start talking like they've been best friends all their lives. To the point that the roommate's like, give me back the phone. That wasn't supposed to happen. So Michael comes to the house and he says to Char, my son, do you have a picture of your sister? Well, by this time, Kristen's 18. But the only picture Char could find is a family portrait where she's 10 and Kelsey's two. It gets worse. They're, making ma- they're wearing matching dresses I made for them. And... and Michael's like, do you have anything more recent? Charles like, nope, this is it. That's my sister. That's what she looks like. And yet, you know, it was all that was reported to Michael about Kristen that piqued his interest. And um, she ended up coming back. He had moved on to France and she came back to England because that was the call on her life. As she was back, she began to serve in the church teaching Sunday school. Michael happened to return and visit. They met, and the rest, they say, is a beautiful tapestry. <laughs> then there are threads of deprivation. Ruth leaves home, security, her language, her culture, her position, her family, her friends, all that's familiar, her possessions. And she goes to Bethlehem as a widow and the companion of a widow. There's no food. There's no income. But God is going to use this deprivation, this threaded deprivation, 
in this loom to get Ruth where she needs to be. There are also threads of disappointment. Naomi is greeted by the women in Bethlehem, and they're so excited to see Naomi. And she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has afflicted me. I went out full and I have returned empty. So she's coming back in disappointment. She's not coming back in glory. She's not coming back with the wealth of Moab. She is coming back destitute. But we see threads of divine direction in this. Ruth must glean for both Naomi and herself. And she just happens upon the field of Boaz, who just happens to be a relative of Elimelech. That's what my son Char, when he was little, would call a divine coinkydink. <laughs> but then we see the threads of drudgery because it's as Ruth works hard in the field of Boaz that she is noticed. If she was not gleaning, if she was not so industrious, she might never have been noticed. But you couldn't help but notice Ruth because of how hard she was working, because of the long hours that she was working in this field. So we see that God is using even the drudgery in this tapestry. And then, of course, there's threads of discovery because Boaz sees Ruth in his field and he approaches her and he speaks with her and he blesses her. Then there's more discovery because when Ruth comes home with 126 cups of beaten out barley grain, Naomi's like, where have you been? Because that is not the normal haul for a gleaner. Gleaners usually got maybe a cup or two cups. And she's come, she's come home with 126 cups of prepared grain prepared, already beaten out. And when Ruth shares with Naomi the field that she's been in, that it's the field of Boaz, there's even greater discovery because Naomi remembers that he is a relative of Elimelech and has the rights of kinsman redeemer. Then we come to threads of deliberation as Naomi begins to make plans for Ruth. You know, isn't it interesting how God can even put his, his plans into our hearts, his mind, as Naomi begins to set out for Ruth a pathway, things that she is to do, which brings us to threads of directives. Naomi gives Ruth specific instructions on what she is to do. She is to go to the threshing floor in the dark, She is to find Boaz. She is to take the blanket off of his feet. That will wake him up and put it on herself. We find that in this dark place, as Ruth follows Naomi's directions, there's even more discovery. As he wakes up in the middle of the night, because there's something at his feet and the blanket is gone and he discovers Ruth, the Moabitess. There's threads of duty in this. Because God uses the traditions of Israel to bring Ruth to Boaz. Ruth goes to the threshing floor just as Naomi directed. She waits for Boaz to finish eating and drinking. She marks the place where he lies down. 
She does everything that Naomi says. And it's through duty. It's through following these directives and and these ancient customs of Israel that God is working into the tapestry. So many times we can think duty is wrong or, or duty shouldn't be or it's something against the tapestry of God. But God is also using that. Years ago, Brian was talking to a young Indian man, Dot, not Feathers, who was, um, and I heard that from an Indian man, who was um, here studying and um, furthering his education in engineering. And his parents had found him a bride. Now, his parents were Hindu. And he was a Christian. And he said, by duty, I should go back and marry the woman that they found for me. It's, a, it's my dad's ex-partner that he worked with. It's his daughter. And he was really praying about this, not sure, because he didn't want to be unequally yoked. And Brian would pray with him week after week after week. And finally, he went back and he felt like God said, put yourself under your parents and do what they're saying. And he didn't want to offend them. So he married this beautiful young Indian woman. And they moved back to the States. And she knew that he was a Christian. She agreed to go to church with him. And she said that the Lord began to speak and minister to her heart. And one day as she was reading the Bhagavad Gita, because she was trying to resist Jesus Christ, she gave her life to Jesus Christ reading the Bhagavad Gita. How how often does that happen? So then she invited him. She said, we need to go to coffee. I need to tell you something. He had no idea what she was going to tell him at coffee. He said he was sweating. He was scared. He was thinking she was going to say, I can't do this Christian thing. No more church or no more you. He had no idea. And she said, I've given my life to Jesus Christ as my savior. And she became a powerful evangelist for Jesus. And you know, it was by duty. God was using the duty the duty of, his, of these Indian customs, the duty of being under his parents to create the tapestry of this absolutely beautiful marriage. They now have three gorgeous children and God is using them divinely. But God uses duty. We next see the threads of determination. Boaz promises to do all that he can to make Ruth his bride. And immediately the next day, I love this, no grass grows under Boaz's feet. He goes to the city gate where all the transactions in Bible times took place. And he gathers 10 elders around. I'm like, you, hey, you, you. He's gathering as many elders, these 10 elders together. And then they wait together for the kinsmen, the near kinsmen to come to the gate of the city. And Boaz there offers him the right of redemption. Boaz said, look, there's a field that belonged to Elimelech. His widow, Naomi, has the rights of redemption. She's willing to give those to us. And the kinsman says, I I wanna do that. And then Boaz says, well, the person that does it, on the same day that he redeems that field, he also has to take Ruth, Malon's wife, as his own wife and raise up seed to Malon. And the kinsman says, no, I I can't do that. That will jeopardize my own inheritance. I want to give it to my son. See, he already had sons that he wanted his inheritance to go to. So he doesn't redeem it. So Boaz then takes this man's sandals. Again, this is the way of duty. And he shows this sandal and says, now 
I want you all to be witnesses that I have redeemed the field of Elimelech that belongs to Naomi and taken Ruth as my wife. Oh, threads of determination. We also see for Ruth that there were threads of delay. As she had to be still or sit still and wait till Boaz accomplished everything that was needful. Oh, those threads of delay. Sometimes those threads of delay, we can wonder what is God doing or why is he taking so long and time is slipping away. You know, the older that I get, the faster time gets. I can't believe I have been on the earth as long as I have been. And I can't believe that Christmas is tomorrow. (laughs) But these threads of, of delay... As you know, it seems sometimes those things that you want to happen quickly happen slowly, and the things that you want to happen slowly happen quickly. I haven't done any Christmas shopping, of course. I don't know why I'm feeling this pressure, except for that it's only in November, the beginning of November, and they are playing Christmas music every place. The Christmas decorations are every place. We haven't even done Thanksgiving yet, I haven't even picked out my turkey yet. And they're already, you know, playing and playing all the Christmas music and the things for Thanksgiving are already on sale. What does that tell you? (laughs) But Ruth must sit still. She must wait till everything is worked out. She must trust Boaz to do everything that is needful to do so that this tapestry can be woven. There's threads of deliverance as Boaz actually redeems Elimelech's field. And then he marries Ruth. And then there are threads of delight as Ruth has a son, Obed, which means servant. And Naomi becomes the nurse of Obed. And Naomi's life is now filled with joy. Without any one of these threads, the design would not be complete. We would not have the story, the testimony, the lineage going to Jesus, the beauty, the interest, the glory, without each one of these threads. But your life is as much a tapestry as Ruth's life and Boaz's life. There is a loom, which is the framework of your life. It has to do with where you were born, has to do with this time in history in which you live. It has to do with the background of where you've come from. But there is also the weft of your life, which is the threads that God is weaving every day. And there are threads of drama. As a friend of mine says, God always builds the drama. Isn't that true? He always, you know, will God come through? How will he come through? And he always comes through. But if there's one thing I've come to expect from God, it's the unexpected. He never does things my way. I give him plans, directives, maps. And he's like, thank you very much, Cheryl. I'll put these on the back burner, literally. And I'm going to do it my way. And you'll be glad I did. Threads of drama, which adds such life and dimension to our tapestry. There are the threads of death, which have to do with the the death of dreams, 
How many of our dreams has God said, no, not this dream, a different dream of our plans and even death of of those that are close to us, sometimes because they don't want to walk with the Lord, sometimes because of their choices and sometimes because heaven is waiting for them. There's other threads of discouragement when God often closes doors. There's threads of desire that God uses our desires, the things that we naturally like to bring us into his purposes and to create his tapestry. There's dedication, those threads of pressing into him when we recommit ourselves to God and to his design and we refuse to leave God or his promises. There's also those threads of deprivation when things are taken away from us. I remember one year, I used to have themes for every year of my life. Now they're coming too much in succession. But I remember the year that letting go was the theme of my life. And I remember one of the things that I had to let go was my daughter decided, my oldest, Kristen, the one that married Michael, you know, chose to move to the United States. And I missed her so desperately. I also had um, a miscarriage that year. So I had to let go of... of um, a baby. And I also had, um, where I had to step down from certain ministries and it was all this letting go and letting go and letting go. And it seemed that every week there was something else that was required of me to let go. And yet I can look back and say some of the most beautiful threads were woven into my life that year of deprivation as I had to let go of things, as things were taken away from me. There are also the threads of disappointment when things do not go according to our will or our ways. And some of my greatest disappointments have been the greatest lessons and turning points of my life. God uses even disappointment, drudgery, God will use those places of hard work where you have to get a new job and it's, it's hard and you're learning new things. And you find that later those threads will become so important to the overall theme of the tapestry. Those difficult, hard times God uses to tell your story to others. Then there are the discoveries the new lessons, the truths about the character of God, the truths about ourselves. You know, this morning I was reading Luke chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is saying, you know, don't worry for your life. And all of a sudden I was like, guilty, Lord, I'm worrying about Cheryl. I can feel it. I'm worrying about Cheryl. You know, sometimes, honestly, I'm not eating the pity biscuits. But somebody comes up to me and goes, oh, I heard about what you're going through. And they just like stuff them down my throat. And I'm like, oh, I'm eating these. I'm on a diet. You know, and they're just kind of putting them in your mouth. You're like, oh, great. I was trying to avoid pity biscuits. And now I've just swallowed, you know, three boxes. And all of a sudden you're starting to think about you. And so this morning I was repenting for being worried about Cheryl. I was trying to add a cubit to my height and it wasn't working. And as I was, you know, just kind of repenting, the Lord goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm repenting. I'm thinking about me again. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Cheryl, I didn't bring this to your attention for condemnation, but for release. You know, how many times when we find 
that there's something, you know, wrong. You know, oh, I, I sinned here, I sinned there. And we, we start to, we want to condemn ourselves. We're like, excuse me, Lord, I just got the go to jail card, you know? Here I go, go straight to jail, do not pass go, do not collect $200, just get in jail and put the bars around you. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I did not let you see this for condemnation, but for release, for emancipation, that you might be emancipated from the worry of Cheryl. So you'd see that you've got that. So you could present it to me so I can deal with it. You know, we're, we're weaker than we realize. We have less power than we realize. We don't have the power to change our nature or our lives. But we do have the power to present our lives to Jesus as a living sacrifice and allow him to do the surgery and fix those things that need fixing. We only present. So when you find those things that you've done wrong this week, and you will find very many, I'm prophesying over you. All all will sin this week in some way. All will blow it because Thanksgiving is coming and spiritual warfare is coming because there's a retreat. It will happen. And you'll find yourself being embarrassed by yourself. Have you ever embarrassed yourself? No, that's just me. Sometimes I really embarrass myself. I, I get the wrong reaction to things. When I mean yes, 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 I often say no, 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 no. And then they're like, no, wait, did I say no? I meant yes, 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 yes. But I do those. I get those two mixed up all the time, which is funny because they mean the opposite. But I want you to know that it's only for emancipation, not for condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. It's all about emancipation. You need to remember that this week. It's a word of grace. This is some of the new discoveries, and that was my discovery this morning, so I share it with you. I love Matthew 13, verse 52. Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasury things new and old. Don't you love that? See, every day there are new lessons, new discoveries, but also there are the old lessons, and we're bringing those out too. So there's discoveries. Then all of us have deliberations. There's our plans, our patterns of thinking, our way of doing things, that God is even using that in our lives. He also uses directives, our obedience to his will, our cooperation with him. God wants to do things in cooperation with us. Sometimes, have you ever said, God, just do it through me? Just, just make me do it? God's like, uh, no, we're going to do this together. Oh, please just make my feet walk. Just make my hands move. And the Lord's like, move your hand. Remember how Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand? There was cooperation. The healing didn't come until that man took the directive to Jesus and stretched it out. So with us, there is that cooperation with the Lord, that obedience to the directive of the Lord. Then there are the the threads of duty. Every day, those mundane things that we do, whether it's dishes or laundry or dusting or cooking, These things God weaves into our lives for beauty, testimony, and purpose. You know, sometimes I find that it's the little things, not the big things that God is often doing his most intricate work in our tapestry with. 
It is those daily things like making the bed. I'm going to tell you a secret. Brian does not understand why I make the bed every day. Now, for me personally, if I don't make the bed, I don't feel like I have order in my life. I I like to make the bed so at least one thing in my life has order. You ever have that? It's like, there are the pillows. It's, it's, It's ordered. But Brian thinks, why do you make the bed? We're just going to sleep in it tonight. We also have posts on our bed. He thinks those are for hanging shirts and clothing on. We have this little deliberation about the bed. I like it for decorative purposes. He likes it for functionality. But God uses these mundane things like taking the t-shirt off of the bed for glory, for the tapestry, for the beauty. God also uses determination when we put our hand to the plow. When we don't give up because of discouragement or obstacles, God uses that in our lives, in our tapestry, in our testimony. God also uses delay, not that thread yet. We're going to wait on that thread. We're going to wait on that fabric. There is a time, but it's not now. Be still and know that I am God. That theme of Psalm 4610 is Everywhere I go, God is so speaking. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to be speaking at a breakfast on Isaiah 46. Um, excuse me, I'm going to be speaking on Psalm 4610. I ought to know where it is since I'm speaking on it, right? Psalm 40, I know the address, I know where I'm going. But God keeps doing this again and again. Be still and know that I am God. It's like I open a devotional. It's be still and know that I'm God. So I choose another devotional. It's be still and know that I am God. It's like, wait, is there another word coming from heaven? Be still. No, this is the word. Be still. Stop. And do you know that be still actually means stop fighting? Put your weapons down. Stop striving. This is all the, the right rendering of be still. Just, just stop pushing and just know, know by experience, know that he is God. In fact, he's almost like sit back and watch me work. Put the weapons down, put the striving down and watch me work. No. Remember how God said by the plagues in Egypt, how God said by the Red Sea that the Egyptians would what? No that he is God. In Ezekiel, God says over and over again, and they will know that I am God. He's not only speaking about the Israelites, he's speaking about the Babylonians. God wants us to be still so that he can be seen. And he wants us to know by by putting the weapons down, by saying, I'm not going to fight this one. God is going to work this one. I was at Cracker Barrel back in New Hampshire. I'm looking at quilts because they have the, I love quilts and they have these quilts at Cracker Barrel that are really inexpensive. So I'm looking and I see one that's kind of the colors of my house and I pull it out and it's got this huge embroidery circle on it. And it says, be still and know that I am God. I told Brian, I'm supposed to buy this. He said, no, you're not because there's no room in our suitcase. I told you functionality. So I give way to the threads of duty. Even on a quilt, God is speaking. And then the song at Cracker Barrel was speaking on being still and knowing that he was God. 
I was telling a friend about this and she's like, Cheryl, look at my necklace. And her necklace said, be still and know that I am God. And she said, look, I got it for 80 cents. And she took it off and she put it on me. (laughs) Be still and know that I am God. You know, God uses those, there it goes. God uses those delays in our life to sit still and know that he's God. No, it's not time for you to do it yet. Just wait, just wait. And those delays are being woven into the tapestry. Then there is the deliverance. When God actually works, when we're standing back and we're watching him work, those wondrous places where God gets us out of trouble once again and delivers us. And of course, there's the threads of delight, those threads where we're just worshiping the Lord. We're going back going, wow, I'm beginning to see the design. You did this with my life? What's it going to be like when we get to heaven and that tapestry is unrolled? And we say, you did this with my life? You made this beautiful thing with my life? These are the threads that you took. It's so, so beautiful. I can't believe you did this out of my life. Oh, there's a tapestry for each one of us that's waiting in heaven. And when we see it, it's going to take our breath away because it's so beautiful. And you're going to see that all those threads, all those strings, all those colors, all those times God was using to make this thing of immense beauty of design, of testimony, of glory. I think we're going to go around showing each other our tapestries. Look at my tapestry. Uh, Is it gorgeous? And we're going to be like, oh, it's just beautiful. I think I told you before, I remember being a young woman and I was having a lot of um, disciplinary problems with my oldest son, who's now a pastor. See, God uses those threads. And it it was just a very trying time. And I fell asleep and I had this dream. And in heaven, I, I was a, among the throng. And there was a great big video screen that was put up in heaven. And God was showing videos of all his works. We were looking at the tree and we we're all going, oh, because we understood trees. Like we understood, you know, chlorophyll. And we, we understood all the processes that belong to a tree. And we were just like in awe of God creating a tree. And then we saw flowers and all of heaven's going, oh, we saw mountains and we understood the glory of what God created. We saw stars and we're looking at all these things when all of a sudden there's Char. He pops into the picture, which Charlo was the first photo bomber that I ever knew. He bombed everybody's photo. We went to Israel and he's in everybody's photo. Well, one of the things that happened is he fell into the headwaters of the Jordan, right? Brian was watching him. And uh, Brian said one moment he was there and the next minute he wasn't. And then he sees two hands coming up out of this aqueduct and there's our son dripping wet. We've just left one hotel. We're on our way to the next hotel. There's no luggage because the luggage went ahead of us to the hotel. And there's my son and he's going because the headwaters are cold. They're a melted snow, right? They're melted snow. So he's coming out. So my mom has a t-shirt that says I was baptized in the Jordan River. So... (laughs) He puts that on. He's got somebody else's shoes that are like three sizes too big. And he's got a staff like Moses. And 
Every picture, he's like this. In with his staff and his, I was baptized in the Jordan River. We go to the Israel reunion and everyone's like, oh, I've got the cutest pictures of Char. You're like, yeah, there's his head. There's his foot. There's his staff. He's got something in every picture. So as I'm looking at the screen of heaven, I'm like, he photobombed heaven. You know, what am I going to do with this kid? You know, here he is on the screen and in heaven, everyone began to ooh and awe over Char. It was purposeful. And everyone went, what a beautiful design. Oh, how glorious. Oh, look at that thread. Oh, look at that stitch. And they were all talking about how beautiful and how precious my problematic disciplinarian problem was to heaven. How glorious, how valuable to God. And I woke up right after that. And the Lord, of course, told me that he was my treasure, not my discipline problem. And boy, was I convicted. Even now, still, whoa, I hope he doesn't hear this. (laughs) But God is working these threads into our life for a masterful design. He is the great weaver, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Hannah Whitehall Smith said that Christian happiness comes when we see God in everything. I want to end with this, and it's Philip's translation of Romans 8, verse 28. It says, Moreover, we know that to those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Everything is being woven into that tapestry of beauty and of glory. For those who love the Lord, nothing hits us. Nothing touches us that cannot be woven into this tapestry for beauty, for grace, for glory, for testimony, for purpose. Our God is a great artist, and you, my friends, are his masterpiece. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have chosen to display your artistry, your beauty, your creativity, your genius, your testimony in our lives, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would trust you, Lord, that we would trust the thing that you are creating, and Lord, that we would look forward in expectancy to what you're making out of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.